Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Thanks for tuning in. For the record, I just want to put it out there that in the name of our show, Fresno and Best are capitalized but not podcast, because we are not trying to make claims about our podcast status within the pantheon of Fresno podcast. I'm definitely conceited, but not that conceited. Now on to today's show. Today we have on our show Dr. Patrick Fontes. Dr. Patrick uh, Fontes is a fourth-generation Chicano from Fresno. His grandparents crossed over into El Paso during the Mexican Revolution in 1917 and then made their journey over to Fresno, building an adobe home around 1920. Dr. Fontes received his Ph.D. in American History from Stanford University. His research interests include Mexican-American history, immigration history, 20th century American youth subcultures, and the criminalization of Chicano culture. His poetry has appeared in Mastichella Review, uh, Asintos Review, and the James Franco Review, as well as the Suisun Valley Review, the Civil Birch Press, as well as online poetry site La Bloga, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. Uh, He also published his first novel in 2016. As always, you can support our podcast by making a financial contribution on Patreon, which is always much appreciated, or by giving us a rating and review. And without further ado, here's Patrick Fontes, and Baker will take us there. Politics, religion, culture, art, music, show some respect to the best little city left in the U.S. Fresno's best. Fresno's best. All right, so Patrick, where do you like to eat in Fresno? That's a great question because I, I love food. Um, from the earliest memories, I was in the kitchen with my mom cooking. So I grew up, I grew up in the Tower District. Um, my favorite two Chinese restaurants are Lums on Divisadero, um, before it curves going downtown, uh, going down to Rodin Park. It's been there for about 100 years in Fresno, but they've closed during the quarantine and haven't opened back up, which is Uh-oh. very um, great Chinese food. Um, huge plates, but um, so tasty. And the other Chinese restaurant is Imperial Garden on Herndon and Blackstone. If you walk in, the place is filled with Chinese Americans. You know it's good. Um, they have dim sum there. My Mexican places, of course, my mom's cooking, but El Cochinito Contento on Palm and Olive. They make ho- great homemade um, corn tortillas. And Kukas, which has a location in Tower District, but also down in old Chinatown. Um, my dad took me there when I was a kid. And his dad took him there when he was a teenager. Um, Pimani's Deli, Italian Deli in Tower District. I've been going there since I was in the second grade. I grew up in Tower District. And I still go there like three times a month. I love Pimani's. It changed hands. The original family doesn't own it anymore. But still, they, they kept the sandwich recipes the same. Me and Ed's, of course. <laughs> the staple. The staple. I've been going there since I was a kid. And the pho restaurants on McKinley and First. There's like three of them. Plus 75 and the others that surround great places to eat, great Vietnamese food. Those are my staples. I go to a lot. Okay. So I want to dig into the Chinese question a little bit because I really haven't done that on any of my shows before. Um, so like what, what is the Chinese food scene here? I mean, I know that Chinese food can mean a lot of different things. So what, what, are, the, what are the places that you like? What, what, what are we talking? I mean, what are, what are the kind of dishes you order? Well, there's different Chinese, right? Because um, Lums, it's been here for about 100 years. It's essentially the kind of food you would find in the 50s or 40s and 30s. It's, it's different than Imperial Garden, which is modern Chinese that you would find in Taiwan. 
Um, some, well, of course, a lot of the things are similar because they're catering to us Americans. Right. It's, a different, it's a different type of Chinese. Um, just like Mexican, you'll find different types of Mexican food. You find Mexican food that serves a traditional two-plate enchiladas, beans, and rice. And a lot of that comes from northern Mexico. And with restaurants like Bobby Salazar's that have been here for two generations, that's a generation that came here during the Mexican Revolution, and it's like two or three generations old. And you find newer Mexican restaurants that serve like mariscos or seafood tacos that were never here when I was a kid because Chihuahua and Sonora, places like that are landlocked or don't serve seafood, Mexican seafood. When I was a kid, the idea of eating shrimp tacos was wasn't available it was like wow that sounds weird so there's yeah. different different immigrant groups bring different um regional dishes over time you know there's a great show on hulu right now um it's called taste the nation so padma lakshmi that hosts the iron chef show mm-hmm. and she what she does is she kind of does like um like biographical stories of like the food we eat and kind of like ties it to the immigration oh, and like the different, it's, it's such a cool concept and there's so many good episodes. Um, the one on Chinese food is great. And uh, her kind of like talking about what Chinese food is and what Americans think, but then yeah. there's another really good one uh, that takes place, uh, you know, in El Paso Juarez area. And so she, and she, you know, kind of tracks the people coming back and forth to work on each side uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think a lot of right food is tied to like when people came, like what they brought yeah. with them. Right. Um, and so it's not, it's like, it's almost like in some ways kind of a snapshot. Would you say that's a fair characterization? I think that's, that's, that's definitely a fair. Um, I often bring food history into my history classes. I ask, I ask my students, imagine what food was like in ancient Rome. What would you expect? They would, they say, they say pasta, right? I say, well, pasta. <laughs> Pasta was nowhere in ancient Rome. That came during the time of Marco Polo and um, the overland trade route. And they'd say red sauce. Well, that wasn't the case either because you'll find tomatoes in Mexico, right? Mexican peppers. And go back to the ancient Aztecs, you'll find salsa and tamales and that kind of thing. So food history is fascinating and how immigrants bring their different dishes to America and over time, yeah. Absolutely. I think one of the most underrated, and I've got the book right here, actually. It's on my desk. Um, it's one of my favorites. It's, uh, I think you'll recognize it, uh, 1493 by Charles Mann. It's yeah. really a book about kind of the Columbian exchange and like, you know, all the things that were brought back and forth, which, you know, I mean, uh, let's, let's jump right into the history stuff. I mean, you know, this is kind of want to be going to be one of my nerdier episodes because I'm also a history person as well. Um, but I, you know, I've, I've had, um, I want to talk uh, a, briefly about, not briefly, but touch on uh, community history. Um, because within the his, history domain, you know, there's kind of, there's, there's hierarchies and there's snobbery. There's um, some, some disciplines that are more, more cool. I remember when I was um, a history undergrad um, and I went to San Francisco State, uh, they had a great master's program, I remember. But I remember that there was a sense of snobbery by the Europeanists um, towards the Americanists. And you know, <laughs> there's like all these, and people don't, I mean, you know, it's true in, I guess, every discipline. There's always kind of like the cool, the cool, chic uh, uh, study, you know, or sub-discipline. And then there's the kind of the more like 
banal. But I think if you were to make a totem pole of like hierarchy, you know, community historians would probably be at the absolute bottom. Community I, I historian, like, yeah, community historians and community college professors. <laughs> and it's like, it's completely arbitrary, of course. Um, but it's, I think they're kind of viewed as kind of like provincial, oh. uh, you know, uh, hagiographers. I mean, to use that fancy word, basically meaning like kind of making your town seem more good than it actually is and not being really to be objective about the history of where you're writing or just kind of like crazy people that collect tons, thousands of like brochures from the 1930s. Well, there uh, are people like that, but they, they're doing it, a valuable work too, though. I mean, it's right. interesting yeah. stuff. So where, where, why, why is that snobbery wrong? Why are community historians so important for well, I, this I, I first experienced that. I, I, I got my BA from Fresno State, my MA from Fresno State, and my PhD from Stanford. And I remember at Stanford, we were, you know, we had a, 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 a meeting on where we can teach. And the idea was that if you taught at a state college, that's noble because you're, you're down there in the trenches and, and um, there's this idea that maybe people may look down on you for teaching at Fresno State or, but it's still a worthwhile cause. I mean, that was the, what we were being told. Well, I'm actually teaching at Clovis Community College. That would be like even below the standard to some people at Stanford or, Yale or Harvard, right? That it's sort of out outside the sphere of where I should be teaching. But this is where I want to be. Fresno is my home, and I think it has a fascinating history. And I actually started at Fresno City College as a student, and and I, I love being with these students who um, who become electrified when they when they read particular histories they never learned before, right? So did I answer? Maybe I. I'm yeah, off. you answered my question. So in the terms of the teaching side, but like, uh, why focus on just uh, individual cities' history? I mean, I feel like that's also the other layer of it too, right? Sure. Like the the place, you know, the people that kind of are the they're almost like uh, the family uh, the family keeper of the family stories, you know. And sure. I feel like focusing on and writing about individual cities is not as maybe sexy is writing about broad historical patterns or maybe, well, maybe I'm wrong. Especially when we're talking about Fresno, right? I mean, if you're a historian in Los Angeles, if you're writing about New York in San Francisco, then you can get away with it because this, these, these are sexy cities. They, they're major cities. But when you're talking about Fresno, I mean, people would ask, well, what, why do we want to be read about Fresno? What's the, what does Fresno have to offer? Yeah. Right? That would be the, the question. And, um, Fresno has a fascinating history, right? And a history that even Fresnans don't know about. Um, so, and, and also um, not only writing about Fresno, but able, able to, being able to connect it to a larger California experience, being able to connect Fresno history with a larger American experience and root it in an American experience, tie it to the gold rush, to this, even to the Civil War, um, the Cold War. All, Fresno was part of all these major threads throughout American history, but people living in Fresno don't know about this history. Why, why don't we have a class in our public school system that's the history of your city? You know, that's I, an interesting thing to me. I would be a big advocate of that. We barely have one about Californian history, um, and it's, you know, it was in fourth grade or something? Yeah, fourth grade, we, we make the mission, we build a mission. I, I built mine on San Juan Batista. I, we, we couldn't go to the store back then and buy 
ready-made. I had to make that thing from flour and paper mache and get my hands dirty and build it like a construction worker, right? It's so, it's so terrible. I mean, you know, I, I, for, for me, okay, so like, for example, I teach eighth grade history, which is U.S. history to the Civil War. Um, and it's supposed to be kind of like an introduction to civics uh, in some ways. Um, and they replicate those, that course, my courses replicated their junior and senior year when they take government, they take U.S. history. And I, you know, it's like we're, we're doing things over again when we could be teaching, you know, I feel like students would be much more interested if they could walk down the street and say, oh, that building right there is that thing versus, I mean, it's important to understand U.S. history, but, you know, I mean, it's to, to tell a kid that, you know, something about Massachusetts, you know, when they've never lived outside of Fresno, it's like, well, okay, relevant how? You might as well be Moscow or London, right? Exactly. It's so I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's, maybe it's too provincial, maybe it's too small, but I think there's some value in that. And it, let me ask you this. If, if, it's not provincial when you're able to connect it to um, the larger threads of American history. That's when students are like, wow, now I see myself. I see how me and my family are connected to the gold rush, to the westward movement, to the Wild West. Right. So um, have, have there been good books written about the history of Fresno? What's the kind of the literature or the historiography to use? I, I keep using these history words. Historiography just means like the books that written about a subject. Well, I, I have a, a, a shelf full of local history, but there hasn't been like a, like a, a good history book. A, a lot of histories were written during the early part of the 20th century. Uh-huh. Um, by by boosters, city boosters who were trying to entice East Coast and Midwest peoples to come in and live in the valley. But um, a, a modern, the last 20 or 30 years, good history? Um, no, I would say no. I think there's been stuff like, I, I don't want to demean anybody, what Catherine Rehart puts out, right? Like local vignettes of of rogues and heroes like two pages long like small essays written by by a comprehensive true history good history true history good history i i don't think so yeah no that's that's what i was looking for because when i moved here i was like you know what i'd love to just have a compendium book that i could sit down kind of like i mean there's been so many like wonderful biographies of new york city as a city you know and it's you know because it's such a literate high literate culture so there's an audience for that. And so maybe there's people just don't think there's nice, but I, th- I think, you know, one of us, either it's going to be you, you or me, Pat, you know, one of us is going to write, write that comprehensive book. Cause I think it needs to happen. I think people need to see it, it will in, happen. Its whole, in its whole, in its entirety. So you work with oral histories though, around Fresno, right? Yeah. I'm working on an uh, oral history project right now. I'm, um, I'm, re- I'm researching and writing on, the 1960s Chicano movement at Fresno State from around 65 to 75. And I'm conducting oral, oral histories right now. So um, is it uh, kind of like uh, looking at kind of the protest movements that were happening during that time? Or that what was what are you focusing on? I mean, what are you looking for, I guess? Well, I'm right now I'm interviewing anybody I can. I have a, um, a few dozen interviews under my belt. And my, my first chapter is being published um, next semester um, through the UC Santa Barbara and University of Austin Press. And that, that, that chapter details the 1968 protests uh, when the first, really the first wave of Mexican-American kids arrived at Fresno State and pushed for sort of equal rights on campus and equal voice in 
in the newspaper. And they finally win um, their, to have the newspaper once a month um, in their, their, their own publication. And so that's like the start of a Chicano civil rights movement at Fresno State. If you go back to 1960, there was about 10 Mexican-American kids on campus. Wow. Virtually, virtually none. By 70, um, the population is growing and growing. But um, when they first get there, they feel like they're in a foreign world. Um, and they have to like, fight for their rights. And there was a few fights between the Aggies and the Chicanos, like fist fights, and some stuff went down. It's pretty interesting history. Wow, that's fascinating. I, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I want to read, ultimately. I want to like, understand, you know, I mean, for me, like, I, you know, one of the biggest things that I noticed when I got out here was just kind of this real uh, stark contrast between this kind of like Clovis worldview and this Fresno worldview. And oh, kind of like, you know, and, and trying to understand where that came from and understand kind of the sprawl. But there's, I feel like there's so many subjects that people could explore. And there's so many issues of class and even race and um, segregation. Yeah, it goes back decades, even you know, to the 19th century. Yeah. Um, speaking of history, do you mind um, talking a little bit about your family story and how how they arrived here in Fresno because they were coming from Texas, right? Yeah, they landed in Texas during the, well, um, on my mom's side, my great grandparents came here during the Mexican revolution. So my great grandma would tell the stories of Pancho Villa. I know Pancho Villa is a folk hero, but to, to her, he was a villain. And even to my great grandfather, um, Pancho Villa stole his lands. So my family was evidently landowners and Pancho Villa took over the land during the revolution. And my great grandma had stories of Pancho Villa's, Pancho Villa's men coming through her village and taking all the, all the pretty girls. We know that they actually did this in history, right? Pancho Villa was a womanizer and they would steal pretty girls from the villages. So her mom would hire, hide her in the vats of um, big jars of rice so that Pancho Villa's men wouldn't take her. Oh my gosh. So the, the, the war raged for 10 years. Can you imagine living in Fresno and Clovis and, and, and during the Civil War for 10 years, there's dead people everywhere. There's dead people he, hanging from the railroad poles and everywhere. So it became unbearable. And um, I think around 20%, between 10 and 20% of Mexicans left Mexico and came to the United States. They just couldn't take it anymore. It was just unbearable war. So my, my great-grandma and grand, grandfather crossed the border into El Paso, and they still have the paper. It cost two and there in El Paso, Theodore Kearney's men from Kearney Park area, it was a ranch back then, um, they were recruiting Mexican laborers. And my great-grandfather was a young man. And they recruited them to come to Fresno. And they, when they first came to Fresno, they worked on Kearney Ranch and built an adobe home here near um, Roding Park. And my grandma was born here and all my great-aunts and uncles and my parents and I'm fourth. If you count my grand, great grandfather and grandmother, I'm fourth generation Fresno. <laughs> and I have an album. My great aunt, um, who died during the Spanish flu when she was a young girl, she took pictures of Fresno. I still have her album of Fresno around 1920s. Cool, cool image images. Wow. Um, just a little bit of context for me because I'm still learning about Fresno's history. So I, you know, obviously I've heard the name Kearney a million times, but uh, was he just kind of like the uh, the kind of the big, he's just a big landowner, farmer, Cajun he, he was, guy. He, he was one of the movers and shakers during the early 20th century. He was actually English orphan um, immigrant. He was from England. And he came to Fresno 
It's hard for, I think it's hard for Californians and Fresnos to imagine a time when Fresno was celebrated because we're always maligned. But, you know, you, you watch a movie and, oh, yeah, Fresno, it's like a place you don't want to go to. Mm-hmm. At, at one time, Fresno was um, considered paradise. When, when, when these men got together, they harnessed the, mountains, the mountain waters and, dam, and created dams and made this desert and swampland into a, a para, an agricultural paradise. Um, City Boosters promoted that paradise all over the nation, and people came here in droves from the East Coast and the Midwest to come and stake and claim their fortune, not in gold anymore, but in the the produce of the land, right? Um, The yield of the land made people rich um, who came here, and lots of family farms. But Theodore Theodore Kearney came here, and he was one of the first to have a... um, Vineyards for the sake of producing raisins. He was one of the first raisin farmer ranchers, and he became really rich. And the house we used to you, see, you now see at Kearney Park, yeah, that was actually the servants' quarters. He had plans yeah. to build a, a French chateau, um, a, repli- a replica of a French chateau we saw in France that was going to be like ten times bigger, um, but he died. So, the, but that was actually the servants' quarters, the house we see now. That's wild. I had no idea. I, I feel like that it isn't properly labeled. <laughs> I mean, when you're out there, you just feel like it's just, oh, well, this, this was his, this little palace, but man. He was going to build a grand chateau. <laughs> so when do, you, when do you kind of mark the departure from that quote-unquote grand age uh, to the age that we're living in where in TV shows they follow serial killers back to Fresno from L.A.? Well, I think that two, two different histories converge because even in the Spanish times, um, when before, before this was the United States of America, I mean, when it was Spain and Mexico, the valley had a really bad reputation. Um, along the coast, um, people knew that people in the valley were rogues and cutthroats, and this is where the criminals came to live. It was, it was where the hard Indians, the hard natives, and where um, convicts went to escape. So it's, it always had that reputation to begin with. And I think that converges with Fresno when we see in the, the early mid 20, 20th century or early 20th century when um, corporations start to buy up land and no longer becomes a place where family farms. And somehow this mix is, converges with the, the, the bad reputation of Fresno. And, and I, I always say that Fresno is a working class area with very little working class jobs, right? Because for, people come here to work in the fields, and then they have children, they have children. And I think there's more, there's more working class laborers than there are jobs in Fresno. And that, that, that creates a bad scene, because if you grow up and there's no jobs, you get involved in gangs. And, and Fresno, has, Fresno has always been, in, since the late 19th century, a place that's considered like the Wild West, right? There's, there's always been a high crime right here. Um, because lots of young men came here from around the world, from Mexico, from China, from, from Boston. They come here without their mothers, without their fathers. They come here and they go to Chinatown, they knife each other. There's always been this element in Fresno of coming here as a, a working class kid and getting in trouble, right? Yeah, I remember uh, just, just a little while ago, Aziz Ansari came to Fresno to do a show, and I went. And there was multiple times where he made jokes about being afraid and like wanting to go get back into his SUV. And at one point there was um, like a 
some kind of altercation that took black took took place at the back of the theater, and he legitimately was like, "What's going on back there? What's going on back there?" So yeah, I I, I think yeah, the reputation definitely precedes it, and I, but I think I think you're right. I think we do need to really point out not the not the person to blame necessarily, but like when I got here, I was just as confused. I was like there's half a million people here. Where do people work? Like I, what industry is here? Cause I know they're not, I know they're not all farmers, you know, out there. I know that farmers are such a small part of the, you know, economy in terms of how many people are actually involved. So it's, it, it was confusing to me. And I, so I just, I didn't understand like, like what's the economy look like? You it, know? Looks like it, looks, it looks like a paycheck from the federal government. I think that that's how many people live in Fresno. Unfortunately. Yeah. Eesh. Well, you know, I think uh, I definitely respect uh, people that are trying to work uh, to make Fresno better and bring jobs and things. And I, I, I think that's, you know, that's part of the key. You know, I mean, I talked to a lot of people about downtown redevelopment issues. And I think, you know, I think the jobs have to come first, ultimately, right? They do. You know, they and, certainly do. and I don't know, you know, I don't know what industry, you know, if it's going to be tech, like Bitwise thinks, if it's going to be you know, more advanced agricultural jobs, whether it's going to be, you know, more like warehouses, like Amazon warehouses or, or what it is, but there's got to be something. People have to want to live here. Yeah. It's a harsh environment. I mean, you have to have, you have to have, you have to endure four months of sweltering heat and bad air. I mean, those are things that people you have to think about, right? I mean, there's a reason why Silicon Valley is, is where Silicon Valley is. It's perfect. It's a perfect environment. Yep. It's, it's, it's a pleasant place to live. There's things that do. There's an actual nightlife. There's people want to live there because it's the, the quality of living's high. Unfortunately, the quality of life in Fresno is not high. And, yeah. and I, I, I talk to people that say, well, we can get Fresno like San Francisco. We, it, can be like, it, can never, it can never be like San Francisco because it's not a port city. It's not a cosmopolitan city. We have to accept the fact that Fresno will be different. We can create things here that can make the quality of life better, but it will never be a world-class city. It just can't be. It's landlocked. There, it's very rare that a landlocked city is world-class because it's, it's not a cosmopolitan port city. Throughout history, the greatest cities are cosmopolitan port cities. Yeah. And I think that's whether you're on the Thames, whether you're on, you know, whatever river you're on, whether you're, you know, whether you're uh, on, on in the Mediterranean, on the coast. I mean, just it's true universally. And I think, I think that can sound a little fatalistic, but maybe, maybe it's not, maybe it's just like, we just need to accept who we are, then move forward kind of thing. Um, It's ironic because at one time we almost became a port city, right? That I tell my students, go, go, going back of Woodward Park and stand there and look at the bluffs. That was essentially where the river was. Now it's a little creek because of the, of the dam. Boats would come here from the Bay Area. And at one time, Fresno's um, icon was a steamship. That was our icon when Fresno, was first start, when Fresno first started, before the dam was built. Yeah. I, um, I, I, one of my summer activities, I like to float the San Joaquin from the Friant Dam. And when I look at, you know, I look at the river, I'm like, oh, this is a decent sized river. But then I look back at the Friant Dam and I think, oh, my God, like this, <laughs> this, this would have been this would have been the Mississippi uh, yeah. coming out of the Sierra Nevadas. And there were giant salmon and grizzly bear and herds of wild elk and wild horses from the Spanish days. It was teeming with wildlife. There was bald eagles everywhere. 
I tell my students, imagine a grizzly bear right here, because this is where they live. We had grizzly everywhere in the valley and herds of wild elk. And, yeah. yeah, I think, you know, I think people don't maybe know that how, how, much, how much water issues in California have changed the environment. Um, you know, there's a couple, there's been a couple really good books about, about these issues. Um, Mark Arax has written some good stuff and there's been some like water historians. Uh, let's his, his book called Dreamt Land, I think is his most recent. Well, um, we could, we could get stuck on this forever. I, I, I do want to talk about a few other things, um, which is, you know, I, so my wife makes fun of me for a lot of reasons. Um, but one of the reasons she makes fun of me is that I, um, when I, when she looks at my pile of books, she doesn't understand, um, what connects them. Cause there'll be a book on geology on top of a book of history on top of a book of short stories on top of a book of poetry. Um, and then the process will start over again. Um, and, you know, I've, I, you know, as being interested in education and academics, I was always taught that, you know, the people that make really big discoveries or whatever, they're the people that really narrow in and focus on something. Sure. Um, but then the other, a uh, few years ago, I read this book by David Epstein called range. And he talked about how people that can touch in different areas, kind of interdisciplinary and develop general knowledge uh, are the people that can be the most creative in connecting the dots. I think so. Uh, and so why, so as a person that's works on history, works in literature, photography, how, why, why do you think the world needs more people like us that are interested uh, in a range of subjects and time together? I, I think that real knowledge is not just knowing things, not knowing facts. I think real knowledge involves this creative, this ability to, to, to be creative in your thinking, to, 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 to imagine history, right? I, I often tell my students, imagine history. See in your mind, you know, geography and timelines and put them together in your mind and, and try to have this movie, this creative idea of history. How do you imagine history? And I think just, just knowing, knowing facts or having this cold repertoire of knowledge, it's not true, true knowledge until you are able to think, think with creativity. Um, I've, I've always been a creative person since I was, I think you're born with it, right? Um, I've, all, I've always was into writing and, um, hmm, let me think. Yeah, well, let me, let me tap in a little further. I, I, I think the thing is, is that, uh, and this maybe goes back to like, if you're writing a history of Fresno, for example, and you want to include everything, you're going you're gonna to touch on art, you're going to touch on culture, you're going to touch on food. And I think, you know, and this, you can talk about academics too. I think academics is struggling from the issue of there's so many people in their niche silos, right? Um, that are not able to see the kind of the broad scope yeah. of things. And that just creates kind of like some navel gazing, you know, as opposed yeah. to. Yeah. So um, when I was receiving my PhD, I actually did four years of coursework. I did two years as an Americanist and two years as a Latin Americanist. So I, I I tell my students, I, oftentimes when I'm studying American history, I have this timeline, this par parallel timeline of Mexican and Latin American history going on in my head where I'm, I'm, I try to see what's happening in the whole Western Hemisphere, right? And um, 
I think it gives me a unique perspective, say, when I'm studying the Mexican Revolution or the Mexican War of Independence, these men saw Jefferson and Washington as their heroes, and they're connected to different revolutions happening around the world and to the Caribbean. So if you're, just, if you're myopic and only studying, say, the American Revolution or the Mexican War of Independence and don't know what's going on in other nations, um, it doesn't give you as much as a, a broad perspective as you were saying as you know, in, into other histories and cultures. It's yeah, and it, you know, it's true in so many ways. I mean, if you just go back to, okay, I'll use an example from this week from, from eighth grade history. So uh, in the eighth grade, um, we're, we're talking about European exploration. Um, and we're talking about Columbus. Um, and I mentioned, you know, that in 1492, the most exciting thing that happened was not Columbus uh, discovering the new world, at least for the people in Spain, the most important thing that was happening was the Reconquista and kicking the Muslims out of Spain. That was the most interesting thing to the world in Spain. But you wouldn't know that if you just knew the kind of like, oh, I'm just going to study what's happening in North America. So I think the thing is, is we, you know, we we want I, we want broad thinking because I think the broad thinking is is ultimately what's useful. I do want that person that's going to dig in, and they serve a purpose. Um, but for most of us, I think we need that broad thinking. I think uh, so. Too. And sometimes I, sometimes I tell my students and some I, I think about, if you really want to know how the people of a particular age thought, read the books that they were reading, right? Mm -hmm. Know what they were reading, know what they had on their shelves and, and understand what they were reading. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing, and you know, you can, you can push back on this if you want. I, I've become, you know, I've really interested in, um, I'm forgetting his name. Uh, he's a professor from, uh, I don't remember. Anyway, uh, he, he's, he started this thing called the core knowledge project, which is this kind of like a movement in K-12 education to really focus on, um, the knowing the basic terms and knowing, understanding the basic facts of all these different areas so you can actually speak with authority. Um, and I, you know, I, so let me, I'm just going to date. We're just, we're just going in. This is great. Um, uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I'm really, I really hate DBQs. I mean, if, if, if the audience is, uh, you know, is, is under a certain age, they'll remember document-based questions from high school. Uh, document-based questions are when you get primary sources and you try to analyze them. Yeah. And every time, you know, whether it's whether I've been teaching 11th grade or 8th grade, the thing that I run into all the time is the students don't have enough knowledge to actually even understand the documents. And so and, and, and then they'll provide some like prologue to the document, like giving them like a brief explanation of like, quote unquote, what's going on, as if that is going to enable them to analyze. Like any kind years of, of history that is behind that document, right? It's 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 totally crazy. And I, and, you know, and then I and then we talk about like, what are the events that led to the American Revolution? They don't remember them, but I'm supposed to be teaching them how to analyze a historical document. So, I, I, yeah, I just think that the whole, at least the, it, from my point of view, education is just off track because, I mean, I'm sure you see this at your community college that kids get there and they don't have basic facts. Yeah, you're, totally, you're certainly right. Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. And I, you know, ultimately, I think, uh, I think reading more general history, I think, would benefit everyone. But I think, I, yeah, I, I really like that idea of general history because as an undergrad, I took several years of Latin and Greek and every class in the Renaissance and humanities I can take, I could take. And that really provided me a, a firm foundation in 
a broad range of history. It was mostly European history, but also Mexican history and the conquest and Cortez and the Aztecs. And taking all those courses and studying Latin really gave me a firm foundation of broad history um, for my further studies. I'm going to show you something real quick. The audience can't see this, but I'm going to show you my, my tattered Wheelock's Latin <laughs> yeah. textbook. Uh, yeah. This, yeah, this was the Bible for a lot of years for me. I have a bunch of fun on my shelf over there, yeah. <laughs> if you want to study Latin, uh, we can give you great advice on which books to choose. <laughs> um, but I want to make a jump. I want to jump to talk about photography. Okay. Um, so what, where's the interest for you in photography? And I know you've been working on some kind of specific projects. Uh, so if you'd talk about some of those projects and like how you selected to work on those specific areas. Am I able to share my screen or? Uh, well, no, this is just going to be audio, unfortunately, okay. yeah. Oh, okay, it's audio. So. Um, my current project, my, the one I'm focusing on right now is called Rage. And can I get my website out for people? Oh, to absolutely. Yeah, please. So, um, if you go to, um, Pat Fontes Art, P-A-T-F-O-N-T-E-S-A-R-T.com, you'll see some of my current projects. And so my current project is called Rage. Now I've shot, I've shot around a dozen, dozen and a half people so far. I'm currently looking for more subjects. And so... <clears throat> we know that we're living through tumultuous times. I mean, there's the nation's so divided, and pe and people are enraged about certain topics, and people are um, going through hard times. So, <clears throat> my my photo project involves meeting with people in Tower District and the at Tower Market, and there's, there's a great wall I can shoot on, and having them let out their rage through this the most powerful scream or yell they can muster. And usually we, we, we go through two trials and they yell as high as, as high as they could and people around are looking at them, of course. But by, by the third time, you can see this emotion coming in their face as they think about the things they're enraged about. And then I interview them and they give me a paragraph about what enrages them currently in, in, in our society. So that's what I'm working on. That's one of the projects. Sounds very cathartic. I feel like I need to do that every day. Every day that I'm teaching class and distance learning, I need to let out a rage yell uh, just, to, just to remind myself one day it will end. Yeah. Um, but given, given our numbers, and I teach in Madera County, uh, it's, it's, you know, I, look, I think I'm going to be teaching at home for, through the holidays. So I'm going to need a lot of rage days, I think. I really uh, feel for you as a, a middle school. I know that's a rough age for the students and the, and the teacher just in a regular classroom. Yeah. I can't imagine what your job is like right now. It takes a lot of patience. Yeah. I mean, the only, the only people, I mean, obviously, you know, I can bemoan my situation, but you know, the people I feel the most bad for right now are definitely kindergarten teachers and the kind of oh, early ages. Cause man. you know, I mean, at least middle schoolers have some semblance of executive functioning. Uh, oh. It's not necessarily that developed, but it's there sometimes. Uh, but with a kindergartner, I mean, man, like I can't even, can't even fat. I mean, it's basically just the parents teaching them and the, the kind of the teacher being a facilitator. Especially having parents, you know, who aren't involved and, oh man, that would be hard. So can't hard. even, can't even imagine. Um, well, I want to end uh, by talking about poetry for a little bit. Um, I, I, I'm a big poetry fan and I feel like it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a, a misunderstood discipline a little bit, um, you know, poetry. And I feel like, um, there's been a lot of uh, mistakes that have been made in popular culture and or 
in getting people in interested in poetry. I think for a lot of people, when they think poetry, they think dead poet society and they think some kind of like really abstruse, like, uh, and complicated, you know, uh, what's, what's it called? A boarding school, uh, right. where they're reading, you know, just reading Walt Whitman and Browning and like Shelley. And it's like very removed from the world, but modern poetry actually is, is, is quite a bit more diverse it's quite a bit more uh, open to different styles and approaches. And some of the most, uh, I, now the book is escaping me. Um, it's a, it's a poet that I really love that rewrote the Declaration of Independence. And oh, I forget what it, I, I'm going to put the link in the notes, but um, there's so many good and interesting poets working right now that are doing things that are different than when you read Shakespeare's sonnet in 11th grade. Sure. Um, and so where, where did your interest from po for poetry come from? And um, would you share maybe one of your poems and talk about uh, your approach to writing poetry? Sure. Well, I, I, I keep going back to my childhood. I've always been a reader since my earliest memories and I've always been drawn to poetry. Um, I remember first reading um, Edgar Allan Poe's Annabelle Lee in the sixth grade and getting goosebumps when I was nine years old. So and so I've always had a love for, for poetry. And um, over the last few years, I've, I, I've written my own poetry. And last, last year, um, I won a, um, a contest um, from a small press back east. And my chat book was, um, it's, it's longer than a chat book. There's like, you know, many pages, 66 pages. So the chat book's around 30 pages. It's a small book. And so um, I, I write about Fresno and great Fresno and, growing up in the tower district just my own experiences and this poem i want to read out is called fresno town okay it's about living in fresno let me shut my fan off <clears throat> fresno town nothing there but you can drive to both cities ridiculed midway point of nothingness uncultured poor illiterate dirty okies a lifetime of soiled fingernails dripping sweat. Mechanics, soldiers, fighters, boozers, losers, white trash, wet backs, rednecks. Blue-collared men with empty heads, so they name us with their ungrateful tongues. Our hard-fought roads left unsung. Like pops rising at 4 a.m. with concrete caked boots, muscle, blood, brick and trowel. As we drove down Shaw Avenue, he often said, I helped build this Fresno town. Home where dew glistens across furled fields under tractors driven by cracked hands. As an August sun peeks over the hills, armies with bent backs haul bags filled to satisfy America's insatiable glands. While they mock us as backward clowns, stuffing their bellies with the fruit of our souls, laughing at the working class buffoons, at our home, this town, Fresno town. Home where hundreds of construction trucks roar to, roar to life, in driveways grumbling like beasts, and coffee percolates in morning's first light, while mamas cook at the stove with bacon grease. Where concrete pours, Tiles set, grape trays dry, where hammers resound, pound, 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 while thousands of uniforms in blue and white 
Work, love, laugh, dance, drink, and cry in this home, my home, Fresno Town. What a wonderful poem. Thank you for reading that. I feel like that captures uh, so much of my imagination of what at least other people think of our town, but also, you know, the beautiful things, you know, seeing that, you know, I'm just imagining, you know, I, I do a lot of reading in California history and, you know, kind of imagining, you know, those early rancho periods, you know, when the sun would go down and the drinking would come out and the dancing would come out, you know, it's that kind of like beautiful, like uh, almost Tuscan sunset uh, day at the end of the, at the end of the, you know, hard work of ranching or whatever it is. Uh, there's something beautiful in it. And, um, you know, anyone that uh, wants to shit on our town, we should, we should let them know, you know, ultimately uh, that, you know, this, this is, this is not a place without people and not a place without people with, you know, working hard to do, do well in this world. So uh, I, I want to end with uh, book recommendations, which is uh, what I, what I like to talk about. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I, I'm, constantly reading and that's just kind of my my religion um so uh, are there some uh some book recommendations you have it, it could be about anything we've talked about or it could just be generally what you're reading right now um so for example i am and i don't usually give my own book recommendations but i'm uh i'm reading this book right now called uh wolf hall which is by uh, hillary mantel and it's a, uh, it's his, I don't normally read historical fiction. I used to have a distaste for it um, because I thought like, if I want to read history, I'm just going to read history. Uh, but she's retelling the story um, of uh, one of the famous guys, Thomas Cromwell uh, from the, the Henry the eighth period. And it's a fascinating, uh, you know, kind of historical imagining, but anyway, uh, what books do you have that you're reading or would recommend? I, I recently bought this last month. Um, I, I, um, I wanted to read slave histories from the slaves themselves. So these 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 um, slave narratives were captured um, during the Great Depression. Slaves, well, African Americans who were in their 90s and approaching the century mark, who were who were, who were slaves during the Civil War, and so it's called Voices um, from Slavery, and they're really fascinating because a lot of these slaves say they they missed. They miss their slave days. Um, it's all these different perspectives of slaves who were treated harshly, like we would imagine. But a lot, of, a, a good portion of these slave narratives talk very fondly of their masters, and it's 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 very interesting to try to try to get into psychology. Yeah, well, and that, was that part of the Federal Writers Project, or yeah. yeah? So like that that was a cool period, and you know, the Great Depression had some really good things that came out of it in terms of our social, uh, social welfare net and, you know, some, some great writing and some great murals and different things. Well, anyway, uh, Patrick, I appreciate you coming on and talking and, uh, where can we uh, find, uh, once you mention your website one more time and then talk about, uh, where people can find your books if they'd like to buy your books. Okay. Well, my novel can be found on Amazon. It's called Maria's Purgatorio. It's, um, it's a coming home story. It's, it's all, it also um, is about the gritty underbelly of Fresno. I, 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 it's a story of a few people who, who um, represent characters I, I saw growing up. I grew up in um, Tower District, but close to Belmont, which is one of the worst places in town for violence and crime. I saw some very interesting characters growing up, and I, I recreate those characters in this book. Maria's Purgatorio. 
Um, my, my poetry co collection can be found on Bone and Ink Press. You search in Bone and Ink Press and um, you'll find it. It's, it's a small press in Milwaukee. Um, my photo website is patfontesart.com. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks, Pat. I appreciate it. And uh, you have a, you know, a enjoyable as much as you can distance learning fall. Um, we'll, we'll keep trucking along, you know, ultimately. Uh, and this is something I remind, ultimately learning is in your control and your power, right? And yes. you can treat this time as an opportunity to, to focus. You know, I know a lot of people have kids and they're dealing with, uh, you know, the difficulties with that. But, um, you know, I think, uh, I think I think this time would be a great time for us to you know really do some deep thinking as a society. So, um, all right, Pat, you have a good uh, evening. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support us either on Patreon or by leaving us a rating and review. Next time, we're going to talk with two urban farmers who are working on a big project in Southwest Fresno that I am super excited about and you will love to learn about. Until then. <laughs>